Today's message will be number 11 in the series on human suffering, and it will be the second part of a review of human suffering. We're giving a review of human suffering because we have been providentially uh, diverted from the series for a period of months, and now we want to come back into it and begin to come to the climax of it, and that being our rewards in heaven and how they are connected with human suffering here on earth. If you have your uh, puzzle there before you in your bulletin, you'll notice that we have put uh, in the center of the puzzle the last piece, which we've entitled Rewards in Heaven. And it is my conviction that you cannot understand the relationship of rewards in heaven to human suffering until you have, first of all, understood all of the other pieces. If you tried just to pick out and teach on rewards in heaven without considering first the other material that we have put forth in the Word of God, then you'll come up with an unbalanced or an unorthodox position upon rewards. Uh, If you would like to, then follow along with us today. We are reviewing the material again in order to refresh our memories before we enter into this final stage to see how our rewards in this life are connected with the sufferings in this present life. Open with me in your Bibles today to 1 Peter chapter 4. We will read again verses 12 through 19. Today we're going to give a review on the Bible's teaching on Christian suffering, the difference between suffering in general for the human human race and in particular the suffering that Christians are exposed to. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, notice that term, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, then shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. May God bless again the reading of his word today. In our last message, we reviewed the four outside pieces of the framework of our puzzle. If you will glance at those, we call these four sides. Number one, the creature's sin. Number two, the character of God. Number three, God's wrath or curse upon sin. And number four, God's solution for sin. We maintain that one cannot keep a proper biblical balance upon the causes of suffering without placing these outside frames together first. The creature's sin reveals us the origin of suffering. All goes back to the fall in the garden. And in spite of the fact that God hates sin, suffering, and death for what it has done to His creation, His character is such that He is still holy and He is still sovereign and in control of all sin, suffering, and death. We looked at God's curse upon sin and learned the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. That instead of viewing ourselves as innocent victims when we suffer, 
we ought to then marvel at how many blessings and good things God bestows upon us. Because if we really saw the exceeding sinfulness of our sin, then we would see that we are deserving of far more than what we are receiving uh, today. And then the fourth part of the framework is that mystery of mystery, God's solution for lifting human suffering is suffering himself in the person of his Son and then in the suffering of his people. In sermons 5 and 6, we examine six individual causes for suffering found in the Bible. And that is where we will be focusing on, first of all, today. If you have, again, your puzzle laid out before you there on your sheet, you will see those six pieces beginning up in the left-hand corner, our Adamic sin, secondly, our personal sins, thirdly, the sins of others, fourth, no specific sin, fifthly, violation of God's natural laws, and number six, God bringing good out of evil. We will now proceed to try to review our thinking on those individual causes. The first individual cause that the Bible reveals that brings about our human suffering is that suffering and death are caused by God's judicial sentence upon Adam's race. Death is the penalty for sin, for the wages of sin is what? It is death, Romans 6:23, And this nature which all of us have inherited and is propagated by human reproduction and generation, this nature we inherited from Adam and it causes all of us to sin. And thus we all suffer the consequences of sinful natures and the actions which flow from those sinful natures. We have addressed that in great length in our first message on the origin of suffering, and that being in the sin of the creature. But let us never forget that what Adam did in the garden affects you. It affected me in that we acquired a sinful nature, and as a result of that nature, then we suffer in this temporal existence. The second cause of human suffering, which is revealed in the Scripture, is that suffering, pain, and death may be sometimes caused by a specific sin on our part. That is, we may commit a sin and then suffer the immediate consequences of that sin. Do you remember that David committed adultery with Bathsheba? And God judged him by taking the life of his infant son. The sin associated with consequences. 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14. You may recall Elisha had a servant named Gehazi who was smitten with leprosy for the sin of covetousness. 2 Kings 5, 1 through 27. You remember we came to the New Testament and we looked at that couple in the early church named Ananias and Sapphira who were actually killed by God in a public church meeting for the sin of lying to the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says great fear came upon the church. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You may recall that Herod, a political figure in the time of the New Testament, was stricken with a terminal disease for the sin of pride. He gave a great speech, and the audience gave an oration and says, it's godlike, it was divine, supernatural. And Herod took the praise for himself, and the Bible says immediately he was smitten with a disease and eaten of worms. Also, we reflect upon the fact that several members of the Corinthian church were punished by God for partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworldly manner in 1 Corinthians 11:27 through 30. That is, that they ate the supper while that they were bickering among themselves. 
And as a result, Paul says, for this reason, some of you sleep and some of you are sickly. That is, God sent judgment upon individual members of a church because they dared to partake of the sacred ordinance of the supper when they were living in known sin, in strife and division. Now, these are examples that are pulled out of Scripture, the Old and the New Testament, that reveal to us that sometimes God sends judgment associated with a specific sin that the individual or individuals commit. Now, what would God have us learn from these examples? Since not everyone is punished the very moment that they commit an act of sin. How many Christians have lied to the Holy Spirit even in a church service, and said things which were not true, and yet they lived? How many Christians have partaken of the Lord's Supper in a manner in which they should have refrained to do so, and yet they were not judged with sickness? What are these examples in the Bible put in there for? We must learn from them, or what lesson would God have us to learn? One lesson is this is that while all personal acts of sin are deserving of immediate judgment, it is of the Lord's mercy that we are not all punished the instant that we sin. Think on that. If God judged everybody the way He judged Ananias and Sapphira, the moment they sinned, the whole world would be a cemetery. Then why has God put these lessons in here? Why has He put these examples in there for us? It is to cause us to be made aware that it is of the Lord's mercy that He has not already taken our lives the moment that we sin. Oh, well, you say, well, I'm glad. Maybe I won't be in one of those categories of an Ananias and Sapphira. I would give us this caution. Let us not presume upon God's mercies. The very next sin you commit may be your last sin. It's of God's discretion when He will call people out of this life. Let us not tempt the Lord our God as Israel did in the wilderness, but let us seek to please Him in all ways and rejoice daily that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed instantly when we sin. The third individual cause of death is seen in your upper right-hand corner of your chart is that suffering and death may be caused by a specific sin committed by another, be it of angelic or human origin. A person gets a gun and shoots another person, kills them, murders them. The shooter commits the sin. The victim suffers the consequence. The Bible is filled with examples of this principle. David's infant son suffers because of his father's sin. 2 Samuel 12:18. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, dies in battle because of David's sin. 2 Samuel 11, verses 14 through 17. The whole nation of Israel suffers humiliation because of David's sin. They're mocked by the surrounding nations. Second Samuel 12 and verse 14. Many innocent civilians suffer during times of war. Ezekiel 21 and verse 3. Suffering may be caused by our own human nature. Suffering may be caused by a specific sin that we commit, or suffering may be caused by someone else committing a sin 
in which that we are affected by that sin. So all of these fit in place as revealed in Scripture. The fourth cause of human suffering. Now listen carefully. Suffering and death may not be the result of any specific sin. Now catch that word. Suffering and death may not be the result of any specific sin. I've not contradicted myself when I said that all sin is traceable to Adamic sin. But now I'm talking about there may be a time in which that you suffer as a Christian and it may not be traceable to any specific sin in which that you do. Or even as a non-Christian, this may prove true. You remember in the ninth chapter of John in verses 1 through 4, where it is there recorded that the disciples asked Jesus a question uh, concerning the cause of a man who was born blind from birth. How many of you remember that? Fresh your memories? Okay. We read there, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the disciples were correct in equating the cause of the man's blindness to sin, that is, his Adamic nature, but they were wrong in concluding that his blindness must have been caused by a specific act of sin committed either by himself or by his parents. Jesus gave this answer. Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And then Jesus used the opportunity of the man's suffering to heal him and display the greatness of God. We dealt with briefly when we were dealing with this section prior to today on we could, how we could understand that parents could sin, but how could the man sin before he was born? since he was born blind. And we dealt with the issue of the rabbis who felt like that there was a possibility of prenatal sinning. And they used the illustration of Jacob and Esau struggling in the womb and then connected that with the passage, I believe, in the psalm uh, where it says that uh, we come forth from the womb, what? Speaking lies. And so the rabbis felt like that there was a capacity for prenatal sinning. And that's probably what influenced the disciples to ask this question. Did this man sin in the womb, or did his parents sin that caused him to be blind? And Jesus said, neither one. This man's sin is for the glory of God, and then he, he healed him. We saw how that this principle, properly understood, corrected two errors existing in today's Christianity. One error which attempts to explain human suffering is that those who are suffering are guilty of some unconfessed sin. Now, you see how that the passage in John corrects that. Here was a man who suffered, and yet he was not harboring some unconfessed sin because he suffered from the time he was born. This was the problem in Job's day, of Job's counselors, his friends, in that they felt that Job must be suffering greatly because he must be sinning greatly, and if they can just get him to confess his sins then God would lift the suffering off. So there's a whole scope of Christianity out here today which is maintaining due to improper understanding of the Scripture and the balance of Scripture that if you are suffering, it's because you are sinning. This principle here rebuffs that idea and it won't fit in. There's another error 
in today's Christianity, in which that John 9 passage relating to the man who was born blind also serves to correct. And that is the error in believing that those who are suffering are suffering because they are lacking in faith enough to be healed. Here was a man who was not going to be healed until Jesus came on the scene. Amen? And just as it was appointed for him to be born, there's a time appointed for men to die. There was a time appointed for this man to be born blind. And there was a time appointed in which Jesus would go by his place of suffering and lift that suffering. It was not due to the man's lack of faith. It was included in the plan of God to glorify his Son. So this popular belief that if you just have enough faith, you can be healed of whatever you are suffering because it's always God's will to heal everybody. That is not found in the Word of God, but it's the popular teaching of today. Again, due to an unbalanced presentation from the Word, taking all of the biblical data before us, This is the reason why these errors continue to exist. You cannot take, if you will follow what I'm doing, you cannot take the Bible's giving of the reason for one cause of suffering and then place that upon the whole scope of human suffering. There are multiple reasons, Brother Dana, as to why the Bible gives us that we suffer. And when we try to give a simple answer for complex questions, we come up with confusion and disappointment. The fifth cause of human suffering, individual cause, is that suffering and death may be caused by known or unknown violations of God's natural laws relating to human health and personal hygiene. you know me, you'll look in both of my ears and you will see hearing aids contained in them. I trace my hearing loss to my hunting days as a younger man in which I shot a shotgun without using earplugs to protect my healing. Didn't know any better, but that didn't spare me from losing my hearing. Overeating. Eating an unbalanced diet, a lack of physical exercise, gradually breaks down the body's ability to function. As we pollute our air, our water, and our soil, we bring sufferings upon ourselves by ingesting the toxins therein. Emotional behavior in the form of anger, jealousy, bitterness, and guilt bring on physical illnesses as well. Being raised in what is known as a dysfunctional family can also cause suffering later on in life. That is a family in which there is not a proper balance of love and discipline. David's family was like that among his children. Eli's family was like that. Improper discipline in the home can bring about suffering emotionally, and emotional suffering can then produce a physical reaction in the human body. So what we are saying is that suffering and death may be caused by either unknown violations of God's laws or known as they affect our human health and our personal hygiene. The sixth reason for human suffering, individual causes that is given in the Bible, you'll find down in the right-hand piece of your puzzle, is that suffering and death may be used by God to bring good out of an evil situation. We gave two examples, you recall perhaps, of Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was mistreated by his brothers. We will not elaborate upon the story of his life. 
They sold him into Egyptian slavery. And he went up and down and up and down all through that time, in jail, out of jail, finally elevated to the throne under Pharaoh, where he's the source of all the food supplied. The drought comes, and the brothers have to come from a distance to get food, and they do not realize it's Joseph. Eventually, Joseph makes himself known to his brothers, and they later confess that they have sinned against their brother, Joseph. Confess that to him publicly. Joseph forgave them. And then he explained the activity of God in the whole matter. Genesis 50, verse 20, we read that familiar passage again. He says to his brothers, As for you, you thought evil against me. But what? Who can finish it? But God meant it for good. To bring the pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Joseph suffered at the hands of his brothers who were sinning against him, and yet his suffering was planned by God in order that he might be in charge of the food supply in a time of drought and save the whole family. Now, only God can bring good out of evil. You and I don't have that wisdom. So we must not then reason that we can sin in order that grace or good may abound or come out of it. Only God has the wisdom to do that. But suffering may be caused simply by a purpose of God to bring good out of an evil set of circumstances. In the death of Jesus, we see the most wicked deed that has ever been performed by fallen mankind. A perfect specimen of the human race is murdered. Peter said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 to many of those who were there at his crucifixion, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Your hands are bloody. You've killed the Lord of glory. Yet he goes on to explain to them in Acts chapter 4 and verse 28 that these wicked hands, were but doing, quote, whatsoever thy hand, speaking of God, and thy counsel determined before to be done. The hand of God represents the power of God. The counsel of God represents the wisdom of God. Men were sinning against Jesus in their actions. And Jesus was suffering because of the actions of others, and God's redemptive purpose was being achieved. God bringing good out of the suffering of His Son. And He may choose to do that from time to time in your life, in which that you can search outside of you, you can search within you, and you cannot trace your suffering to any specific act of sin on your heart or what somebody else has done to you, then it's time then to stop and bow and say with Job, the Lord gives and what? Hmm? The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You go on and worship God, knowing that He is working good in your life, and that He will be glorified. So as these six pieces are placed in the puzzle, we are made aware that we cannot always know the cause of a specific reason as to why we suffer. Simplistic answers, I repeat, to complex situations only cause confusion and further grief. Some of the answers, now follow me carefully, some of the answers may be true some of the time. 
definite answers available to us at other certain times. But we have to be very cautious in our interpretation of suffering, and particularly when somebody else is suffering, that we not jump to a conclusion that because David did something and this is what happened, then this is what's happening to them. we may come up with a wrong answer for a specific circumstance. God help us to be as wise as what? Serpents and what? Harmless as doves in dealing with ourselves and with others on this matter of the causes of human suffering. Now we move from... What we have completed, we move to sermons 7 and 8, in which that we move from dealing with suffering as members of the common race of Adam to the purpose of Christian suffering, involving those which make up the new race of the second Adam. And I hope that you may reflect upon that from time to time. If you are a Christian, the Bible says you are a new what? new creation, you are as distinct from the old creation, those in the world of unbelief, as you are distinct from the animal creation. You are a new creation of God. That's what a Christian is. We looked at two basic reasons as to why Christians suffer as revealed in Scripture. First, identification with Christ. And second, corrective discipline to produce a godly character. Looking first as to how our sufferings identify us with and connect us to Christ. And lest that we are thinking, as you're listening to me, that when I'm using the term suffering, I'm just referring to physical pains and health. That's not the way the Bible refers to it. We're talking about afflictions, tribulations, trials, struggles. You remember Paul in his early missionary journey when he went and founded the churches, when he doubled back and reestablished those churches, he gave them this understanding that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom. It's part of understanding the Christian life that afflictions and trials and sufferings go with it. Get used to it until you enter the final stage of the kingdom of glory. Every Christian is going to be exposed to Christian sufferings. It is therefore of great importance to understand that our sufferings are constructive rather than destructive. Remember old Jacob of old? Thinks he's lost Joseph, going to lose another one of his sons. And what does he say? All these things are what? Against me. They're destroying my family. They're destroying my life, my happiness. Jacob needed a dose of Romans 8.28. All things work together for what? For good to them that love God. That's a believer. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Jacob needed reminding of that. But let's don't be too hard on Jacob. Every one of us fall into our seasons of self-pity. Bad news arrives. Everything's against me. The, world, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. What was the name of that riddle? Chicken? Chicken Little? Or something like that? Hmm? Am I right? I bet anybody here that's under 50 years old never heard of it. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Let us get bad news. And our sky is falling. Everything is remorse. We're going down. No, let us be reminded again that our Christian sufferings are constructive rather than destructive. When we suffer as believers, we are enabled to enter into and appreciate what Paul calls 
the fellowship of His sufferings. Philippians 3 and verse 10. We learn that the word fellowship means to share something in common with another. When something happens to us that happens to other people, we say, I can relate to that. Or I can identify with that. That's fellowship. Those that have arthritis, when they meet somebody who has arthritis, they have fellowship. See it? They share something in common. Our sufferings enables us to relate or identify with Jesus Christ in His sufferings. There's a common bond there. There are three results we learn which come forth from our sufferings. Number one, they draw us closer to Christ. And if your sufferings are driving you away from Christ, you need to re-examine the foundation upon what your hope is based. Sufferings are designed to draw us closer to the Lord. Secondly, they draw us closer to other Christians. After spending 40 years in the pastorate, I can't remember the hundreds of people that have sat under our ministry in three or four different churches, local churches, and plus others in our conference speaking. Hundreds and hundreds have left the fellowship of other Christians in the church when suffering hit. Hmm? Beloved, that is a great acid test of whether you really know the Lord or not. Is whether or not that when suffering hits, you realize you need the support of other believers. And if it takes you away from the fellowship of other believers, something is going wrong or is desperately wrong. You're either a sheep that is straying in which that more suffering is going to hit or else it's going to manifest itself in due time, either in this life or the life to come, that you're not a one of Christ's sheep, you're a goat. The third benefit of Christian suffering is that it provides an opportunity to witness or as a testimony to unbelievers. People who suffer together often bond together. Suffering somehow linked believers to Christ in such a way as no other earthly experience can do. See, the world thinks, man, if you're suffering and you, you say you are serving God, why you get out of it? Wasn't that what Job's wife concluded? Job, if this is all you get from your service of God, why don't you just curse God and then He'll kill you? Get out of your misery. Unbelievers cannot understand how a believer can be drawn closer to Christ and to other believers through suffering. So it presents an opportunity to give a testimony. Suffering brings Christ near in a personal and real way. And thus our Christian life becomes living and vital and is not merely theoretical. When we learn to appreciate the meaning of Christ's sufferings on our behalf, then we're ready to appreciate the meaning of our sufferings on His behalf. He suffered for us, for our need, and we in turn suffer for Him and His cause. Suffering draws us closer to other Christians. 1 Corinthians 12:26, Paul says of the body of Christ, that if one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Have you noticed that? Physically, my body is a body of suffering at this stage in my life. 
And it's impossible for my foot to hurt and the rest of my body not know anything about it. It's all joined together. Ache here, ache there, ache everywhere. (laughs) One member of the body. You hit the finger with the hammer and the whole body erupts. Something's happened to that. Let's, let's see what happened out here. Send, send help. Now, Paul uses that analogy in the Christian family. And he says when one member of the body suffers, it sends a signal to the other members of the body that help and support is needed. So we rejoice when members of the body rejoice and we weep and grieve with those who are suffering. There's an empathy that is brought out in our humanity toward others. When we suffer as Christians, we are enabled to comfort others who are suffering. Paul said of his sufferings, that God, quote, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them who are in any trouble by the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Have you been brought through a season of affliction and trials and God has seen you through it? And now you've come out of it and you've learned some lessons. You are now qualified to speak to someone else whom you meet who is just entering in to those same events. You can comfort others because God has comforted you. So it's an opportunity to minister to other members of the body. But now suffering may also be sent by God to correct our backslidings. Sometimes Christians grow cold and careless toward the church and its ministry. Every pastor sees that. Sometimes pastors, shepherds, grow cold and careless in the oversight of their flocks. And God often sends sufferings and afflictions to restore them through the trials and afflictions that come. Afflictions may restore a wayward sheep and bring them to a restored fellowship with Christ and His people. 1 Peter 4.1 For as much then as Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind that as He has suffered, for He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The believer's response to suffering provides a testimony or a witness to unbelievers. The unbeliever observes how believers struggle with God and yet maintain their devotion to God. Through all of his pain, his doubts and his questions, Job would yet say, Though he slay me, yet I will what? What you say? I'll trust him. Though he slays me, I will still trust Him. What a testimony of commitment to God to an unbelieving, mocking world. As the Roman centurion observed Christ's response to His sufferings on the cross, he said in Matthew 27, verse 24, Truly this was the Son of God. Be ready to explain your hope in Christ, when a unbeliever asks you how you keep on serving God in the midst of your trials and sufferings, it provides a prime opportunity for a Christian witness. Be ready 
to give a reason for the hope that you have within you. Quickly, the second dimension or purpose of Christian suffering is to develop Christian character. In addition to helping us identify ourselves with Christ's sufferings, our sufferings are designed by God to develop our moral character into the likeness of that of Christ. And this character will enable us to enjoy our life in the new heaven and in the new earth. Now, see if you agree with this next statement. Without this transformed character, it would be impossible to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Do you agree with that? The character that you possess today is not yet ready to inherit heaven. If God took you to heaven today in your present character and left you as that, heaven would be a very unhappy place for you. I've often made the statement that if you took an unconverted man and took him to heaven, it wouldn't be five minutes before he'd be looking for a window to jump out of. Everybody thinks they're going to heaven today. And they have carnal views of heaven. That heaven will remove all of their problems and they'll be able to do this and that and the other. One lady in one article said that she looked forward to going to heaven so she could eat all the chocolate she wanted without getting fat. One fellow said he wanted to go to heaven so he could hit one of God's high fastballs over the fence. Listen, heaven is a place of holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There will be absolutely no selfish desires in heaven. And you're not ready to go there yet, Amen. Legally, you have a standing with standing with God that's not going to separate you and prevent you from entering in to that wonderful place and state called heaven. But your character has to be radically transformed before you can enjoy that state. And the only person who can enjoy that state is one who is without sin, like that of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The fruit of this process of character development we gave was threefold. Just going to refer to them and not come back. Number one, God's development of your character as a believer is designed to purify you from the love of sin, which is selfish desires and actions. Secondly, it's designed to, it's designed to wean you from an undue love of this present world. And thirdly, it prepares you for us for our new home, which that we'll live forever and ever in an eternal state of happiness and holiness. Now let's turn for the conclusion this morning to the book of Romans chapter 5. I call this section here in Romans 5 and verses 1 through 5 a biblical philosophy of suffering. In this section of Scripture, the Apostle describes the order in which our sufferings lead us into glorification. Glorification being our final state of existing in the presence of God. I'm going to quote today from the, from the New American Standard Bible, which is almost identical with the New King James Version, because I believe it best describes the modern meaning of the English words as we use them today. If you have your Bibles open, follow me as we read this section of Scripture. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained 
our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult or rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations. The word tribulations can be translated also sufferings. Knowing that tribulation or suffering brings about perseverance, and perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now keep your eyes on your passage there as we do just a brief exegesis of it. In verse 1, Paul describes how our being justified by faith is the entrance into the Christian life. There is an entrance into the kingdom, an entrance into the Christian life, and it occurs by our justification by faith. This gives us a legal standing with God, thereby securing a peaceful relationship with Him. We have peace with God. Verse 2, we are told that this faith gives us access into a continual supply of grace which imparts a hope for a future state of glorification. This word hope, as used here in the Greek text, means not maybe so, but it means a certain prospect of things to come. Seeing that we've been justified by faith, we're standing right before God and will always be that in that legal standing, now then, this gives us access into a continual supply of grace that is given to secure a certain prospect of our ending up in glory. Not a hope so, maybe so thing. It's a certain prospect. And then knowing that our destiny is now certain, this enables us now to look upon our tribulations or sufferings in a different light. Verse 3, in that they are producing perseverance or perseverance or endurance. Paul told Timothy, endure hardness as a what? Hmm? A good soldier of Jesus Christ. Every once in a while, I come across a person most usually men, but it's rare today, that still have hard-working jobs. And when you shake their hands, you can feel the harshness and the toughness in their skin. Years ago, nearly every man's hand had that. Hard work produces toughness. Suffering produces toughness. Endurance, perseverance, where you keep on keeping on in spite of the difficulty. And that produces a backbone, backbone, a character that is being formed that when people meet you, they can determine how you're going to act based upon your character. We say of a person that if a person acts a certain way, they're acting according to what? Character. If a person does something that surprises us about that person, we say they are acting how? Out of character. Not like them. Do you see what suffering and trials and afflictions are designed to do? Not to destroy you as a Christian, but to reconstruct you. And to give you a backbone, a toughness. To endure whatever hardships the providence of God lays in your way between here and glory. The word tribulation that's used here in verse 3, verse 3, is a word meaning pressure. Like that of press squeezing the juice from grapes. And the source of this pressure comes from living a Christian life in a fallen 
and an unchristian or sinful world. You ever feel like that you just sometimes don't belong in this world? That the way you think and the way you act just doesn't fit in? Now, when you try to think and act out your belief system, that puts you under pressure because you're running across a world which does not think like Christ thinks. It does not have the same worldview. And so there's a pressure from living in this present world. And this pressure, look in your passage, in your passage produces a perseverance or an endurance which means the ability to stand up under tremendous weight without giving in. To bear the weight of the Christian life upon your shoulders and not give in. And this is coming from our trials, our afflictions. They're making us stronger, not weaker. And as this endurance develops, it forms, look next in your word, a proven character in the old King James experience. But I believe the modern understanding is far more true to the Greek text. It gives, it produces a character which has been proven. That it's genuine. That you're a genuine thing. You're not a phony. That we're not hypocrites. That we stand up even when the world, the flesh, and the dead flesh, and the devil says, Give in! No, I'm not giving in. As for me and my house, we'll what? We'll serve the Lord. No turning back. You ever sing that song? No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Though the world allure me or persuade me, no turning back. This proven character is the maturity that is attained by being tested like a metal in the fire. There in verse 4. What that word is associated with in the Greek text. As this character is being developed and formed, a hope, Brother Asa, of certainty begins to blossom as we anticipate glorifying and enjoying our God in the world to come. Verse 5. Such hope will not, will not be disappointed. Since it originates in and is strengthened by the Holy Spirit continuously pouring the love of God into our hearts. Have you ever had a hope that disappointed you? No. Well, I had a hope this was going to be this way, and it didn't. Brother Jim, a child of God who's been justified by faith and enters into the Christian life and has this continual supply of grace to secure him and develop his character unto glory, when the end comes out here, he will not be disappointed. He'll be able to enjoy his God and in glorifying him forever. And thus, verses 1 through 5 of Romans gives us what I call a biblical philosophy of Christian suffering. And the genuineness of our faith is now being developed in the fiery furnace of our tribulations or sufferings. Now we can rejoice in our trials because we know what their purpose is and we now know what they are achieving. We shall be enabled to enjoy our God forever in the holiness of heaven because we have been made partakers or will be made partakers of a character like that of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Even so what? Come Lord Jesus. Do you want to be like Christ today? Do you want to have a character that always delights in what the Father delights in? Do you want to have a character that always wants to be a servant to others rather than having others serve you? 
That's what Christ, that's what Christ's character is like. Oh, for that day, Brother Asa, to come when I'll no longer have a divided heart. I'll no longer be torn between loving my God and loving the temporal pursuits of this life. But my heart will be undivided and I'll love Him the way the Lord Jesus Christ loved His Father. Let's pray.